Welcome to Newer Church with Corey Turner. We pray you encounter God and become more like Jesus through this message. To find out more, visit us at numa.church. Thank you, Lord. Why don't you go with me to Mark chapter 14? Thanks so much, team. Mark chapter 14. Let's go from verses 3 to 11. And uh, last week, as I was just praying about this conference, the Lord took me to this passage and immediately began to script upon my heart things that He wanted me to speak into. And um, this has got to be one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture, beautiful things that happened in Jesus' ministry. And it says in Mark 14, verse 3, And while He was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask. Other translation says an alabaster box of ointment of pure nard. Very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? Everybody say wasted. But this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, verse 10, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. I want to speak to you just for a few minutes tonight on the wasted life. The wasted life. Uh, it was late last year, a man walked up to me in a conference and he prophesied a simple word. And it was the two words stripped back. And it took me by surprise. And he said, I don't know what it means. You're going to know what it means. And he walked off. Talk about unhelpful. Stripped back. I'm like, what do I do? Take my jacket off? What's going on here? And, uh, you know, out of all the amazing words that I received last year, those two words just reverberated in my heart for weeks and weeks on end. And God began to speak to me about saying no to a number of significant things in my life and my ministry that I was a part of that were good things. How many of us know sometimes it's the good things that get in the way of the great things that God's got for you? And there's a point in your journey with God where, where, where God wants to take you into greater realms of relationship, of, of, of ministry fruitfulness and of all that He's got for you that you actually need to begin to let go of the good things that you're a part of and that have shaped your ministry up to that point. And, and many of you are at this point in your journey in your life, I believe prophetically, where you've come to this conference and you're a part of lots of good things and there are good things that you're connected with, but the Lord is coming to you and He's saying, actually, I need you to let go of some good things so I can take you to greater things. And so God began to speak to me about laying down assignments and, 
and roles and positions and things that I was a part of that had real significance attached to it and saying no to a whole bunch of uh, speaking engagements and bookings that I'd already booked in. And actually, and I'm saying, okay, God, you're asking me to strip back. And he says, yes, because I want you to seek me more. There are things that I'm taking you to. There are things that I'm wanting to do in your future that unless you strip back and unless you say no, you will not be able to say yes to the greater things that I have for you. And God made it very clear to me that there would be people who, who, wouldn't, sit, who wouldn't understand. He said that they're going to consider your decisions as a waste of opportunity. They're going to look at your no and not understand. It's not going to compute, but it's what I'm calling you to do. And soon after um, word got out, I had several leaders, pastors and brothers in arms come to me and say, what, what's the real reason why you step back from that? What, what, what's the real reason? Come on, be, get level with me, be honest. What's the real reason why you're knocking back all of these opportunities? And they, and they couldn't wrap their minds around simply God said. Sometimes God saying what He says is enough. You don't need to understand it. You don't need to interpret it all. You don't need to work it out. We know in part, we prophesy in part. What God is looking for is a responsive heart that says yes and amen to whatever it is that God is asking us to do. I talk often in our church about two dimensions of time that the Scriptures reveal to us. And one of those dimensions of time is chronos, the ticking of the clock and the turning of the calendar. The other dimension of time that we read about in Scripture is kairos time. It's that God-appointed window of opportunity where you and I must lay hold of and seize if we're going to maximise the moment that God has us in for the intended purpose to which He has called us. There is a famous saying that simply says the opportunity of a lifetime must be seized in the lifetime of the opportunity. That every opportunity and invitation that God gives you has an expiry date to it, I've discovered at different times in life. Now, when it comes to you breathing and being alive, the opportunity or invitation for relationship and salvation is always there. There, there are certain invitations that are open-ended, but when it comes to the call of God on your life, when it comes to you stepping into the time and season that God has ordained for you, that the, the opportunity of a lifetime must be seized in the lifetime of the opportunity. It's really important that we pay attention to what God is asking of us today because tomorrow depends upon it. You see, obedience today prepares you for fruitfulness tomorrow. And there are things that God is wanting to bring into the church and wanting to bring into your life, wanting to bring into your ministry that require your partnership and your obedience today. Otherwise, you're going to delay or even worse yet, miss out on what He wants to bring into your tomorrow. And so here in Mark chapter 14, we have Mary, the sister of Martha, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. And she seizes an opportunity to do, to do something so beautiful that Jesus declares that wherever the gospel is proclaimed, what she has done will always be declared in memory of her. Talk about epic. And in verse three of this passage, we read where Jesus is actually in Bethany in the house 
of Simon the leper. Now, if you do a word study on Bethany, you discover that Bethany, the town, means house of affliction or poor house. It was a town that cared for the sick. It cared for the poor and for the dying. It was the place that Lazarus died and was raised back to life. And so here is Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God is about to take away the sins of the world. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's in the house of an outcast in a town known for its poverty and affliction. And yet one of the most beautiful things and beautiful acts in all of the Gospels takes place in the house of affliction. I felt the Spirit of God want to tell somebody in this room that He's about to do something beautiful in your house of affliction. That you might feel right now that you're in a place of restriction and affliction, but some of the most beautiful things in life, in God's purposes, happen in the house of affliction. I love the greatest, one of the greatest and grandest truths of Scripture is that God is good. How many of us agree with that today? God is exceedingly good. He is beyond good. And because God is good, if it's not good yet, God's not done yet. So don't you give up on the call of God and the purpose of God for your life. No matter how afflicted you may be in this season, God wasn't the author of your pain or persecution. He's not the author of your debt or your divorce. He's not the author of your sickness or your stronghold. In fact, Hebrews 12.2 says, He's the author and perfecter of our faith. James 1 and 3 says, It's the testing of our faith that produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The Bible tells us in John 16, Jesus declares in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We know in Romans 8, 28, that the Bible says that God makes all things work together for good. For those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, God didn't send the house of affliction, but He can redeem what the enemy has stolen or is wanting to steal in your life in the house of affliction. And every one of us in this room has our own story of affliction. Literally, of the hundreds of people in this room tonight, we could go around the room and ask you your story and your story and all of our stories. And all of us have got a Horror story, a story of affliction, a story of pain, a story of loss, a story of brokenness, maybe in our families or maybe in our own personal lives. And you might find yourself in the house of affliction tonight, but you need to understand that we're in relationship with a God who in Isaiah 61.3 says, I give you beauty for ashes, an oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of heaviness. And so into this house of affliction comes Mary, Mary Magdalene. And the Bible says that as Jesus was reclining at table, she comes with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. The Bible records that this very specific detail, it's very costly, and she breaks the box, she breaks the flask open, and she pours it over his head. You see, pure love is always measured in the cost of the sacrifice you make for it. Pure love is always measured in the cost of the sacrifice that you make for it. This alabaster box is a marble-like stone container. It was used to 
preserve expensive oils and perfumes. As you study this, you discover that some scholars suggest that the ointment that might most likely would have been in this flask and in this uh, alabaster box would have been distilled from myriads of roses which required leagues of gardens to make a single drop, either from uh, Saudi Arabia or somewhere in India. And the sale of such costly oil would have yielded, we know, and many of us have preached this, more than 300 days wages for a labourer. And so here is Mary, and she takes the most expensive possession, most likely that she has in her life, and she breaks the narrow neck of the flask, and she removes the wax seal, rendering the alabaster box useless for anything else other than pouring it out upon the body of Jesus. She didn't do this out of spontaneous impulse. She didn't do this out of, you know, oh, this sounds like a good idea. No, there's careful, deliberate intentionality and preparation that has gone into this. Why? Because while Martha has learned to serve Jesus and the disciples are learning to follow Jesus, Mary has learned to love Jesus. And she has a revelation of who Jesus is that the other disciples really don't understand. You see, pure love will always be measured in the cost that you're willing to sacrifice it for it. You know, my kids um, are growing up and, and it's such a joy and, and, and an honour and frightening to watch them grow up and begin to become more independent and step into more of their call and their purpose and and, and two of our kids particularly are at an age where they're at a, a transition in life. And how many of us know when your kids go through transitions of life into more adult years, it just gets more expensive. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? It just gets more expensive. And so over the last sort of several months, it's been just, you know, it's been a real joy in faith to just see money just disappear and go out the door and, and, and you're sort of like, you know, you begin to weigh up and you begin to look at things and, and, and yet, be, but because you're, you're, a, you're a father that would do anything for your kids, the sacrifice is worth it. Because there's a purity of love that you want to see with stewardship and with wisdom, you want to see your kids step into the fullness of their call, their potential and their purpose. And every parent in this room would lay down their lives for their children if they had to because there is this pure love that is willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice for their children. You don't even question it. You, you do what the best you can, but you're willing to go the extra mile and count the cost because of love. What did David say when he came to the threshing floor of Arona in 2 Samuel 24, 24? He said, I will not sacrifice that which costs me nothing. So many believers want to follow Jesus and it costs them nothing. They want to follow Jesus on their terms. You can't follow Jesus on your terms. You, 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 you can't steward revival on your terms. We worked that out real quick. You, you, if you try and rope it in, if you try and control it, it just flutters away. It disappears. You, you can't be the leader of a move of God. No, you're the follower of the move of God. We're following, we're not leading. The only leader is the Holy Spirit. 
And our role is to stay in step. And our role is to steward the next directive that He gives us. Our role is to steward and host His presence. Our role is to be willing to sacrifice everything for more of where He wants us to go. Pure love is always measured in the cost of the sacrifice you make for it. And it's really interesting, and we read the disciples' response in verse 4 and 5. The Bible says that there were some, so it wasn't just one, but we know Judas featured amongst the some because of verse 10 and 11. But there were some who said to themselves, these are the disciples, indignantly, why, almost like a self-righteousness, why was the ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor and they scolded her. You know what I've discovered about sacrificial love for God? It will always look like excess to the lukewarm in heart. Sacrifice always looks like excess. It always looks like too much. That church down there, that believer, just too much. They're always... Sing and praise to God and they're always jumping up and down and they're always on their face, on their knees. Oh, it's just too much for me. Sacrifice will always look like excess to those who haven't encountered the purity of first love relationship with Jesus. You see, while Mary was worshipping, Judas was calculating. He had his calculator out. And he's like, why waste such a precious gift on Jesus? I mean, doesn't even Jesus know there's like poor down the street? Doesn't Jesus know there's ministry to be done? I mean, doesn't this woman know what she's doing, that we could have used this to actually fund our next mission campaign? I mean, don't you know there's a church plant in those 300 days wages? Don't you know that there is a a, a new frontier of ministry and a new nation and a new city that God is calling us to? I mean, why would you waste such a precious gift? You see, the disciples judged Mary because it showed up their own lack of hunger for Jesus. And it's so important that we never allow our lack to become the measuring stick for somebody else's hunger. God didn't ask you to evaluate Him. He asked you to experience Him. And what can often happen in settings like this, we come in and and I don't sense that spirit at all tonight, but we can come in to evaluate and critique something rather than just coming in like little children and opening up our heart and saying, God, I want to experience you. You will get as much out of the move of the Spirit of God in this place as you open up your heart to receive from Him. What did Jesus say? You're not not going to see the kingdom of God. You're not going to enter the kingdom of God. Not just unless you're born of water and the spirit, but unless you come in low like a little child. You know, it's why I, I love everyone, but I'm really careful not to listen to complacent believers tell me what God is or isn't doing in the earth right now. Because their apathy distorts their view of God. Their lack of hunger distorts their accuracy of what God is or isn't doing in the earth right now. If you wanna know what God's doing, go to someone who's hungry. Go to someone who's thirsty. Go to someone who's so humble that they just, that they don't care about anything else other than they just want more of Him. That's who you go to. 
And it's so important that we don't limit our consecration to accommodate other people's lack of devotion. Some of you have family members that are not as sold out or not as devoted and you almost dial it down. You turn the frequency down. I had a prophecy from one of the leaders at Bethel just last week about the importance of not allowing yourself to dial down what God's doing because you're concerned about the response of your brothers and sisters. And, And often what we do is, and this is why the company you keep is so important. You need to run with those who are running where you're running. We, we minister to everyone, but you need to run. You can only run with those who are running with you. And, and, and often what we do is we dial down our consecration. We dial down our devotion to accommodate other people's apathy. And we go into an environment. No, you, you're not a thermostat that's to measure the atmosphere and in temperature. You're a thermometer that's to, uh, to actually the other way around. You're not a thermometer, you're a thermostat. You're gonna change the atmosphere. You're gonna change the temperature. When I, I go to lot, traveled 47 weeks of the year for six years back when I was itinerant and you go into places and environments and they want you there to do your thing and balance the ball on your nose and, and it's all good. But, but you sort of go in and, and it's like the, the, the atmosphere and if you're not careful, you would conform to the atmosphere and environment around it. But no, God, I'm here to change it. I'm here to influence it. I'm here to bring something. This is what it means to carry a spirit of revival. Wherever you go, there is a, that, that river of living water that's flowing out of you, that's influencing, changing the environment around you. Don't be surprised if your zealous acts of love for Jesus stirs up the wrath of your brothers and sisters. Don't be surprised. Every move of God, every revival in history was persecuted most often by the church. In fact, the very thing that you come against spiritually, which revival often comes against the spirit of religion, the spirit of complacency, spirit of apathy, is the very thing that will attack you. If you want to reform society in the political arena or in media, whatever it is that God has assigned you and called you to that you go after, be prepared for opposition to come from that sphere of influence. And often when people start to break ground and into new territory and begin to call people to a life of consecration and holiness and prayer and to be set apart, there is almost this ridiculing and this scolding that takes place. Believers who are half-hearted will never get criticised. But if you break the seal off the alabaster box, don't be surprised if you're numbered with those heroes of the faith. People like Elijah. Who did they call Elijah? You troubler of Israel. They came to David and and, and Michael said of David, you are undignified. How the king has made himself vulgar before the maids of the city. They came to Paul and said, Paul, you're going out of your mind. You're a madman. They came to Jesus and said, you're a blasphemer. And the disciples, 
the big three, Peter, James and John. Judas, who was appointed and anointed to look after the finances of the ministry team. They all looked at Mary's lavish sacrifice and sacrificial demonstration of love and they said, waste. A total waste. And what was Jesus' response to the disciples' criticism of Mary? It says in verse 6, he said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. You see, what man calls wasted, God calls invested. What man defines as wasted in this world, God says, no, that's an investment into the kingdom. You see, to Jesus, the wasted life is an act of beauty in God's kingdom. Mary wasn't a queen. She wasn't a princess, but her worship was in every sense regal. It was pure royalty in action. And she considered that Jesus was worth the waste. And she loved Jesus to the point that Jesus defended her and then reprioritized the disciples' thinking. Came to the disciples and just said, hey, I need you to think a little bit differently about what I value. How many of us know we live in an upside down kingdom? There's a value system that is completely different And according to Jesus, loving him is a greater priority than serving him. And the crazy thing is, we'll hear that. We'll even be in an environment like this, but default back to Martha-like wiring. Remember one time the Holy Spirit said to me, son, you, you got the wiring of a Martha, but you got the calling of a Mary. And I've allowed these two tensions, these two almost contradictory postures in you to actually help you understand the inhale and exhale of relationship with me. I put these in you to understand that there is something I'm calling you to rule over and to restrain, that even though there's this wiring for action and for service, I've actually called you to sit at my feet and pour yourself out, live the wasted life and live at my feet, I, just a few weeks ago, Peter Mattis was here and he began to prophesy over me one word over and over again. He looked at me, he laid his hand upon me and he said, Mary, Mary. And he just keep repeating it, Mary. How many of us know sometimes all you need from the Lord is one word? Every time he said it, there was a new aspect, a new revelation that would hit my heart. He would say, Mary, and I knew exactly what the Lord was asking of me. What did Jesus say in verse 7? He said, you will always have the poor with you. In other words, there will always be ministry for you to do. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. We need our minds renewed to what God values so amazing that while the disciples shrunk away from thinking about Jesus' death to the point that Peter was like, no, you'll never die. And he partnered with a demonic thought. Jesus said, get behind me. The disciples didn't want to hear any talk about Jesus' death. Isn't it fascinating that Mary ministered to the Lord in connection to his death? And I began to think about the best ministry that we can do overflows from an intimacy that is touched with the blood mark of Jesus. 
The best preaching is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The best living is it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I'm telling you that when you and I engage in an intimacy that overflows from the crucified life, it becomes ministry that overflows into transformed lives. It's the crucified life, the life that is willing to lay it down and waste it all upon Jesus. That is the ministry that changes people's lives. That is the ministry that brings things into perspective. Intimacy and closeness always brings things into perspective. And Jesus said to these disciples, she has done what she could. Are you doing all you can to love Jesus in your life right now? She has done all she could, what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. What did Mary do? She gave it all. She held nothing back. She poured it all out on the body of Jesus. There's a personal nature to her worship. And it's fascinating to think that the risk is nothing compared to the reward. Who was the first person to see Jesus after his resurrection? Mary. Who was it that Jesus said would be the one that this act would be told in memory of her wherever the gospel was proclaimed? As soon as I read that, I heard the Spirit of God say, nothing you do for me in the hidden place is ever overlooked or forgotten. You know, Over the last several months, people literally have flown in from all over the world for one night, flown out again to receive prayer for healing. And how many of us know wise people still travel to actually go and receive something? We can receive anything from the Lord anywhere, but there's something about a a hunger to receive an impartation. And over the last several months, there's been people that have celebrated and honoured what God is doing Others have criticised it and stiff-armed it and run as far away from it as they can. But it's, it's interesting that people saying, you know, tell me, what happened? What, what did you do? What was the formula? What was the equation? And, and we understand that any move of God is a partnership between God's sovereignty and our preparation. But what people don't see is literally the thousands of days over decades of thousands of hours every morning in our family and in the lives of people that call Numa Church home that every day got up and made a decision, I am going to live the wasted life. I'm going to break open the alabaster box again today. And I'm going to pour out my heart and my prayer and my life. And I'm going to do things that no one else will understand. It doesn't make sense not to do more ministry, but to actually spend more time in intimacy. But I'm going to pour myself out again for Him. And I'm going to wait until you tell me what to do and where to go. 
and I'm going to seek your face and I'm going to pour myself out. It's interesting, both Judas and Mary had the same opportunity to live the wasted life. But verse 11 says, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Mary sought an opportunity to bless him. And today that invitation is given to every single one of us. Every single one of us in this room, every day of our life, has the same opportunity. To break open the alabaster box. To get that wax seal off and say, God, I pour myself out for you today. I want to live the wasted life. Does anybody in this room want to live the wasted life? I want to invite you to your feet tonight. And as we worship and as we gather together and as we begin our time together over these next few days, it's already wonderful, but it's going to become even more glorious. There are going to be words of knowledge. There are going to be prophecy. There's going to be manifestations of His glory and His presence that is going to break out. But before we do anything else, I want to invite you right now in this room that if you say, God, I'm breaking open the alabaster box tonight. I'm going to live the wasted life. I'm going to risk my peers, my colleagues, my brothers and sisters, even in Christ, scolding indignantly and criticizing my sacrificial love as excess. I'm going to open up my heart to you, God. And God, I'm going to pour it all out. If you tonight and say, God, I want to live this wasted life. I want to invite you to come and kneel or stand or sit. Or there won't be enough room for all of us, but maybe those in the tier, you want to get it in that next part of the, the aisle there and just stand and lift your hands or you want to get out from your seat. I don't know what you need to do. Whatever you need to do, but say, God, I want to be like Mary. I want to pour it out for you, Lord God. I don't want to leave this place the same. I want to go back with a revelation of the wasted life. There's no formula, there's no equation. There's just a willingness to sacrifice and pour it out. The Lord will meet with you there. The Lord will speak to you. The Lord will mark you. The Lord will anoint you. The Lord will come, whisper things in your heart that you've never heard before. He'll come and He'll order your steps. He'll give you the strategy. He'll give you the understanding. He'll give you what you need. But it's all found in the wasted life. Father, right now in this room, I pray, oh God, that You would burn this message into our hearts. I pray for those of us who are natural Marthas, oh God, who are busy serving leading, administrating, caught up in the business of life. We're so distracted. 
We're so preoccupied with our own efforts and our own energy, oh God, that we're missing the merry moments to sit at your feet and listen to your teaching. Father, for those of us who have tasted and seen of the wasted life, there is a renewed call from your spirit to consecrate our hearts, to humble ourselves, to come in low again and say, God, we pour it out again. We pour it out again. Lord, I'm asking that you would impress upon our hearts, oh God, those things that you're asking us to do for every single one of us. The alabaster box is different. It looks different for every single one of us, but for every single one of us, oh God, we open that alabaster box tonight. We break off the wax seal and we pour out our worship to You, O God. We pour out our love. We pour out our affection. We pour out our intimacy. We pour out all that we are to You tonight, O God. And we choose to live the wasted life. Come on, begin to pour your heart out to Him right now. Begin to pour your heart out. life-changing decisions being made in this moment right now. I just sense there are life-altering, there are heart-altering decisions being made in this room. People's ministries are never gonna be the same after this night. There are things you're gonna go back and do completely differently, things you're gonna approach differently, things that you've allowed to become. You've elevated the, the common over the sacred. And the Lord is saying it's time to elevate the sacred over the common. There's approaches, there's even defaults of thinking and wiring that need to be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. God is trying to take you somewhere. He wants to do something in you. calling the church in this hour to not simply be busier but He's calling the church in this hour to be more intimate with Him and then out of that place of intimacy will come greater fruitfulness than you can keep up with in every sphere of life some of you feel like your ministry, your business, it's like pushing a truck up a hill. There's a place in God where you get to where you feel like you're hanging onto the back of a Ferrari. It doesn't happen because you make it happen. It happens because you get into the slipstream, into the overflow of the wasted life. Father, I'm asking tonight, oh God, that You would stir our affections, that You would forgive us of our apathy and our complacency. In fact, some of us, we need to repent of that tonight. We repent of our complacency. We repent of our criticism, of demonstrations of sacrificial love. 
We repent of our indignation of others and their experience of you and their hunger of you, oh God. Lord, don't let us be like those disciples with misguided priorities. Thank you, Lord, for the ministry you've called every single one of us to. But God, we're coming to you tonight. We're saying, God, first, oh God, would you give us a merry heart? Would you give us a merry spirit, oh God, to live the wasted life? And out of the overflow of the wasted life, oh God, we thank you for the lives that are gonna be changed, the ministry that's gonna be done, the glory that will be attributed to your name. Thank you for listening to Numa Church with Corey Turner. We pray that you have been blessed by today's message. Please follow us on our social media platforms and visit our website, numa.church.